1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hello, friends. Ron Spomer back with more questions and answers from our viewers and listeners. We really appreciate these guys. I'm getting stumped by some of you folks. Let's see what we can do today. All right. Kay asks, could you load the new heavy bullets in the old 270? You could load them, but you probably couldn't shoot them accurately. The problem with 270s is that they have always been built on one in 10 inch twist barrels. So every 10 inches, you get a complete twist, and that will stabilize 130 grain, 40 grain, 150 grain bullets, 160 grain round nose bullet. And once again, this gets to the length of the bullet, not the weight. If you had a tungsten bullet, you could probably load a 175, 180 grain bullet in a round nose in a 270 and stabilize it just fine because it would be pretty short because tungsten is so incredibly dense and heavy. So it's not the weight, it's the length. And the old 270, the standard 270 Winchester, will not stabilize longer or bullet than the, the traditional 150 grain spire points. Spire point boat tail, 150 grains, and that's a lead core gilding middle jacket. That's what's going to do the trick. You can't put a 165 on there from the, the Acubon long range, 165, too long, won't stabilize. 175 grain Sierra, Game King, too long, won't stabilize. 170 grain Acubon, too long, won't stabilize. The Burgers, I think they've got a 180 now in a 270. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no, you just have to get your twist rate up. One and eight, one and seven and a half, probably. Okay, 338 Federation. This guy's name is 338 Federation. I wonder if his parents gave him that. Probably not. Hey, but he asks a good question. Ron, I have a friend with a 1918 Springfield Armory 30 6 Yeah, it's an old military rifle. That was our standard World War I military rifle. Do you have any information on reloading this classic? Or if not, could you point us in the right direction? Sure. 30 6 That's all you need to know. It's a 30 6 um, I know older rifle like that, I don't know that I would really push the envelope and stuff it with the hottest loads possible, but just follow the directions in the hand loading manuals and load that baby up the same as you do any other. The eight, the Springfield rifle, 30 out six bolt action rifle was a dependable, pretty much a copy of the Mauser, the Mauser 98. We saw that Mauser 98 and thought we got to have something like this too. So we threw away the 3040 Crag and we came up with the 1903 Springfield bolt action rifle. And that's the one that they were building through World War I. And then World War II, the Garand came along. Garand, well, most people 
pronounce it Garand, but I guess the guy's name was Garand, who invented that auto-loading rifle. And the 30 out six, yeah, the steels were grand, good enough back in those days to keep those pressures up. I think the 30 out six average pressure PSI is 62,000, maybe 60,000. Yeah, I think it's 60,000. His 308 is 62,000 PSI. The 30 out six is 60,000. So keep your pressures at 60,000. That's what it was established with, and you're going to be good to go. Maine Northwoods Hunter. I like that title. What is the recoil comparison between the 270, I assume he means Winchester, and the 6.5 PRC? And how does the PRC compare to the 6.8 Western? Nah, that's cheating. Two questions at once. <laughs> All right. The recoil is going to be a little heavier from the uh, PRC if you use the heavier bullets in it. Always got to go with your bullet first. Here's how this is the way recoil works it's the ejecta against and the muzzle velocity combined. I don't remember exactly what the formula is, but you take those two factors the weight of the ejecta, and that means the bullet weight and the powder weight, even though the powder's coming off as a gas, it contributes to the recoil. And then there's the muzzle velocity. Those are against the weight of the rifle, and then that's what you feel. And now the shape of the rifle comes into play too, but there's no way to measure that. That's just felt recoil. The actual recoil is the same. So the ejector weight coming back at that velocity against the weight of the rifle, and then it hits your shoulder, and you've got your felt recoil. And if the, the stock is really coming down at the comb a lot, it comes up and slaps you in the cheek, and it hurts worse, and the, the muzzle comes way up high because the angle of the butt stock is coming down so much in line with it. You want the barrel line and the comb line to be the same if you can. That way it comes straight back in your shoulders, less jump. So then it's uh, how much powder are we pushing and how much weight of a bullet are we pushing between the 6.5 and the 270. They're fairly similar. The 270 will shoot 130 grain bullet up to 150 generally. And the 6.5 will start generally around the 140 grain. And you can get 129s and 120s and stuff. But most guys are going to be shooting the, the heavier ones because they want those high BC long bullets. And they'll go up to 156, I believe now. There may be some a little bit heavier. But, yeah, they're right about in there. So then it becomes a matter of how much powder is in those. In your 270s, you're going to be looking at 58 to 62 grains of powder probably, depending on the powder. And I haven't loaded the PRC as much, and I'm trying to remember, but I think it's just a little bit more than that, not a heck of a lot. So I don't think you're going to see much difference uh, between the two. Now, what about the PRC comparing to the 6.8 Western? That's probably more of a ballistics question. I have a couple of videos on this on Ron Spomer Outdoors YouTube channel. I urge you to go there and look for the 6.8 Western compared to the 6.5 PRC in the 270. And you can really get into the details on that one. But they're pretty close. The advantage that the Western is going to have is that it's got the heavier bullets. The one up to 175 in factory ammo so far that I know of. And I think you're probably going to be able to step it up even a little more than that down the road. But the general idea was to be able to push bullets out of a 270 that would match up pretty nicely with the biggest ones they're pushing out of the seven millimeters. So it gets it right up there into the same ballpark for your ballistic performance. Um, yeah, I think if you want to decide between the 6.5 PRC and, and the Western, the 6.8 Western, think about what the biggest animals are you're probably going to be hunting. 
I don't think recoil is going to be an issue for you. Trajectories are about the same. Wind deflections are about the same. But you've got the bit lighter bullets in the PRC. I would go with the PRC for mostly hunting deer and sometimes elk. I'd go with the 6.8 Western if I was hunting elk a lot and deer a lot. I mean, once you're into the elk range with a bullet like that, you're on the way. <laughs> you can do just about anything with it. I consider shooting a 6.8 Western the same as if I'm carrying a 7 rim mag as far as performance on game and ballistics downrange and everything. Gavin asks, I'd love to see your opinion of the 22 Creedmoor. Maybe compare it to the 22-250 Remington. Ah, these two are twins. I have long been a 22-250 Remington fan, but around the early 1990s, I got into the 22-250 Ackley Improved, which is the Remington blown out, we call it, where we straighten the walls on the sides, get a little more powder capacity, straighten out the walls, and then you put a 40-degree shoulder on that. P.O. Ackley, the gunsmith back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, did this. He had all kinds of cartridges with a shoulder sharp at 40 degrees, which is getting pretty flat. And you'd get a little more powder in there. You generally pick up 50 to 100 feet per second with most cartridges. But the bigger thing was that your brass lasts longer when you're loading. You get less stretching. You're not always having to trim the necks on it. And you definitely have good head spacing against that 40-degree shoulder. And then there are some who say, well, that also helps keep the powder, unburnt powder, in the case during firing. In other words, when the primer ignites and the pressure begins to build, you're not pushing powder down the barrel. And then the powder itself kind of acts like sandpaper. Whether or not it does it, I don't know. A lot of guys say that, and it certainly makes a degree of sense. And then it burns further down the barrel. You're always going to get some of that with anything but a really, really fast-burning powder. But by holding it powder in more with a sharp shoulder, instead of flowing easily out of the case and into the throat and tearing up the rifling right there at the start of the lead, you're going to burn more of that powder, the idea was anyway, in the case itself. Legitimate? I don't know. What do you guys think? There's all kinds of opinions out there, but I don't know of any positive studies that prove that. But that's a pretty good theory. At any rate, that's what was so wonderful about the Ackley Improved cartridges, and still is, of course. The downside to it is that you have to fire form your brass. If it's made right, the 22-250 Ackley Improved can shoot standard 22-250 ammo. It just fire forms to the shape of that chamber. And I don't know that I've ever lost brass to cracking when I do that. You just build a fairly light load or just shoot standard factory loads, and the case will be the right shape when you're done, and then you can run it through your Ackley Improved loading dies from then on out, and everything works out. Sure has for me. Now the Creedmoor comes along. Well, what's the 22 Creedmoor? Well, you take the 6-millimeter Creedmoor, and you neck it down to 22. I don't think they changed the shoulder angle to 40. It's a 30-degree shoulder on the 6-millimeter Creedmoor, and I'm sure they're keeping that 30-degree shoulder. They just neck it down. Trim what results from that would be an excessively long uh, neck, so they, I'm sure trim that down. It is not, to my knowledge, a factory cartridge yet. So you're talking about essentially a wildcat. So you're also going to have to make your own brass, but a lot easier to make brass this way. If you're a hand loader, you know how this works. You've got your 6-millimeter Creedmoor brass. You buy a die that's been built for the 22 Creedmoor, and you lubricate your case, and you run it through the die, and it squeezes the neck down 
and bingo, there you go. Trim the neck and you're ready to load. To me, that's going to be easier than having to fire form cases under 22250 AI. The cases look almost identical. Powder capacity is within a grain or two. So it's a toss up. You're going to get pretty much the same velocity out of either one. And given the performance I've enjoyed from that Ackley Improved all these years, if I were starting off right now, I would probably get my rifle chambered for the 22 Creedmoor and cross my fingers that they were going to legitimize it. I imagine they will. It's just too easy to pass up. I can't think they would, but wait and see. But you know, the fact that you can just take your six millimeter brass from the Creedmoor and neck it down that easily, even if they never do commercialize it, if you're a hand loader, you're in business. Maxwell writes in and asks, what are your thoughts on handgun hunting and or rifles chambered in what are traditionally handgun cartridges? Examples are 44 mag, 357 mag, 454 Casul, 460 SNW, and 500 SNW, and many more. Good question. There are a lot of guys in the Midwest, especially deer hunters, who use handgun cartridges. And after they've shot handguns for a while, they generally just love it. And that's the end of the story. But a lot of them wonder if they can't get more velocity and more performance by using those cartridges in a rifle. And of course, the answer is yes, you can, because that longer rifle barrel gives you more room to get full pressure behind the bullet uh, for a longer time period to bring that velocity up. You're always going to get more velocity out of a longer barrel. The question is, do you need it? And do you want the inconvenience of a longer gun in your hand than a handgun? I would imagine most deer hunters would say, not a problem, because so many of us these days are sitting in stands for our deer hunting. Back in the 1940s, right after World War II, and then for the next, probably for the, the bulk of the 20th century, most deer hunting was still done by still hunting, meaning you're walking slowly through the woods, stopping a lot, glassing, looking for sign, you know, and hunting for that deer, and or big drives where guys would get together. And I think this came out of the camaraderie of World War II. The soldiers came back, you know, and they had been working in patrols and platoons and group effort. And they realized this is one of the oldest of human hunting skills. This is what Native Americans were doing for probably thousands of years. The group would get together and drive the bison over the cliff or drive them into the waiting arms of a spear chucker or something. So it was a natural to set up deer drives. And back in those days, we had big country, bigger country than we do now, bigger fields, I think, especially back in the East and the Midwest, where you've got the farmlands butting up against the mountain ranges, and you got the forest lands that are owned by the timber companies or national forests, that sort of thing. So you would get these big groups of guys, 10 to as many as 20, and they would organize a drive and hunt deer that way. So in cases like that, you know, you wanted a cartridge or a rifle that was going to be able to handle pretty much anything that came your way, running game, swinging on it. I don't know too many guys who take their handguns and they swing. I've done it once or twice on jackrabbits and feral hogs, but I don't know if anybody makes a habit of it. But what's happened since those days is that everyone has gotten tiny little parcels to hunt on, getting tougher and tougher to get great big ranches and farms to hunt. So, so guys will pick up 40 acres. They'll buy it, put a cabin on it, and that'll be their hunting ground. And then they will manicure it and manage it for increased wildlife. You know, all the deer planting trees and brush and 
and vegetable crops for them and all those sorts of things to really improve the population of wildlife on your 20 or 40 acres or 100 acres. But still, it's a fairly small property, and guys don't want to spook the deer off by still hunting it or driving it. I mean, drive your 40 acres and you push all the deer under the neighbor and he goes bang and there went your deer. I hear this a lot from guys and it makes perfect sense. So they're generally sitting in a tree stand with their handguns and they're shooting their deer inside of 100 yards. And a lot of times, of course, they're taking them at bow range. Why not? But then again, there's some guys who've got these open fields on the edges of their places or part of their properties and they're sitting in their tree stand and there's this buck just out of range at 175 yards or so would a rifle make it easier for you to put that 454 casual on target it will certainly help guys because you're going to get that increase in velocity and i'm not a big handgun hunter never have been i know the cartridges and i've shot most of them but i just don't study them the way i do the ballistics of a rifle so with a 460 Smith & Wesson, I know you can make that baby stretch out there pretty darn far. So in a rifle, definitely would recommend that one. Well, I remember when that came out, I had a handgun. I don't remember which one it was, probably a Smith & Wesson. And, of course, it was the big challenge to shoot that heavy recoiling, but it wasn't too bad. And since somebody else was paying for the ammo at the time, I thought I better get my fill. <laughs> and there was a post standing out there, and I asked if it would be all right if I tried to mow that thing down, and they said it would. I don't remember how many shots it took me, but I think I went through a full cylinder and then a half of another one before I got that post knocked off. But that kind of got me started on the 460 Smith & Wesson, and I thought, you know, if I take up whitetail hunting out of a tree stand with a handgun, I'm probably going to use this one. But again, the 44 mag, the 357 mag, those are real popular with handgunners. And you can fight a lot of rifles chambered for them. Single shots. Uh, there used to be a, what was it, a Navy Navy Arms that had a 44 rifle. There's several of them out there. You can find some lever actions in it. A lot of guys will get those. Um, and yeah, you're going to get a little more velocity. But here's the deal, guys. It's not going to be remarkably more effective at long range because you're still shooting flat-nosed bullets. Unless you're a hand loader and can make a special bullet for it, and or look into the Hornady flex tips. They may have some higher BC, more pointed bullets that will work in those. I would imagine they do because they certainly have it in the lever action 3030s and 35 Remington, that sort of thing. So that could make a significant difference and might extend your range by, gosh, maybe 50 to 100 yards. So it's definitely worth looking into. If you're stuck with a handgun only or straight-walled cartridge only um, state or county in which you have to hunt, that's probably a pretty good option. Well, that's about all the time I have today, guys. I really appreciate you listening in. We're going to be trying here pretty soon to get some guests on so you don't have to just listen to me drone on and on. I've got some interesting guys on the line that have agreed to come on. Uh, some of them you already know and other ones I think you're going to be enjoying getting to know them because they know a lot about building ammunition and bullets and loads and uh, hunting and all the rest of the things we all want to know more about. Thanks for tuning in. This is Ron Spomer signing out with his usual Hunt Honest and Shoot Straight. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. 
Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.